8. Well, it's good to be with you, Mercy Hill Church, even if it is over Facebook live stream. Thank you guys for tuning in with us. Uh, I think we need to um, give a quick shout out to Reed. Happy birthday last week, turning eight years old, I believe. And um, maybe we should just start sending in some emails um, each week, and you could share with us what's going on in your life. And then those few minutes before our live stream starts, we could just kind of give some updates um, as to what's going on in the lives of families at Mercy Hill since we can't all interact together. I want to I wanna keep it real with you this week. Just before, Give me a second before we jump into the scriptures. Um, and I just want to be really open with you in saying that this last week, for me, I felt really distracted. I felt uncertain. There were times that I was fearful, whether I was willing to acknowledge that or not. I was sad at times. I was also experienced a lot of joy and gladness. And it's very important that we acknowledge what we're feeling during times, particularly like the times that we're in, and that we learn to take our emotions to Jesus. And so I'm going to, I've got eight emotions on the screen for you this morning to glance at. And I, I'm going to ask you to do something that's crazy. If you want to do an emotional check-in, you can just comment um, on the live stream what you're feeling and put those feelings in the comment line. Um, these, each of these emotions are, are gifts that God gives us. And God tells us that, uh, that when we are afraid that we should trust in Him... And the way to do that is, is not that when we're afraid to try not to be afraid. Or that when we're afraid to distract ourselves. Or to pretend that the fear isn't there because that's what brings anxiety into our lives. When we try to manage uncontrollable fear. Fear is a gift that reminds us that we need God. And that we should turn to Him in our fear. And that we don't have to be afraid because we have a God who is bigger than the fears in which we face. So, take a moment and consider. Along with that, as some of you are dropping your comments in the stream, um, in the Facebook live stream, next Sunday is Easter. And, and I alluded to this earlier. Um, kids, get ready because we're going to get you off your couch during the Facebook live stream next week. And we're going to read the Bible story together. Parents, we're going to offer a resource to you this week so that you can plan and prepare supplies a little earlier. And then after kids have heard the Bible story read to them, just like they would normally dismiss in our Sunday gathering, they can move toward their uh, project that they're working on together. And so thanks to Caitlin Stigler and our Mercy Hill Kids team for keeping uh, these Bible studies and resources flowing through our Facebook Live page. Um, you can jump on the page today on Mercy Hill's Facebook page and see that Bible uh, story that's been recorded and your kids can watch that today. As we prepare for Easter. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a downer. 
but I just need to go ahead and say it this week. I'm bummed. I'm bummed that next week is Easter and that I understand that it doesn't change a single thing about the hope that we have in Jesus because we're in the midst of a pandemic. I understand that. But it changes the way in which we will interact with one another because we will be celebrating Easter separately next week. And so that makes me sad. But with that being said, because of social distancing, a couple of things that I want you to do. I want you to go ahead this week and and begin to prepare communion for the believers in your family. And we're going to, on the Facebook live stream, we're going to worship together with communion next Sunday. And you can do that in your households. And the second thing that I want you to do, this is what I alluded to earlier. Begin to consider how you can celebrate Jesus' resurrection in a meaningful and memorable way in your family. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to email that to info at mercyhillmemphis.org. So go ahead and start working on that this weekend and shoot us an email. And that way we can, we can kind of pull our creativity. And if you have young kids and you have creative ideas of how you can celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday in a meaningful and memorable fashion, send that to us and we'll publish this in our MailChimp email and we'll send it out later this week. So, share your ideas with us. We're excited to see um, how we can begin some, some traditions for the first time that maybe will become traditions in our household. And maybe 50 years from now, our kids will say to their kids, why, or even their grandkids, why do we do this at Easter? And they'll tell the story of, well, there was a pandemic. And that Sunday we celebrated Easter in this way. All right, grab a Bible and open with me to John chapter 3. After, after preaching to about five people in our sanctuary last Sunday, I think I realized that pretending that you're here uh, and acting as if you're here may not be the best way to interact uh, in a teaching perspective. And so I want to encourage you to comment along the way. If you have questions... Throw them in the feed. Someone, someone will, will supply an answer. I'm not trying to be innovative as much as I want to encourage just interaction between us. Because I realize it, that you guys are sitting on your couches. Um, you, you got a warm cup of coffee or hot chocolate. Kids are running around and playing. And so it's a lot different. And uh, we want to promote as much interaction as we can. So as you open your Bibles to John 3... Maybe you take just a moment, and if your kids don't really know much about the Bible, you, if you have young kids, you could use this as an opportunity to show them that John is a gospel that's in the New Testament, and kind of where that is on the second half um, of the Bible. And so as you're opening to there, I want to remind you, as we're in this series on the Gospel of John, I love this book. It's such a great study for us in the midst of, of a pandemic in the midst of what feels like dark times, because in this study we see that Jesus is the light of life. And if we need light, and if we need life at any time, certainly it's now. As a reminder, this book was written by Jesus' best friend. He was was called John the Beloved. That's how Jesus referred to him. 
And John wrote during a time in which most of the eyewitnesses who had, who had been a witness to Jesus' resurrection were now dead. It's over 50 years since the resurrection. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had already been written. And 90% of the material that John includes in this gospel is only found from, from John's story. And, and so we see a lot of new information that we gain about who Jesus is. And John is continually pointing us to the fact that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That we would find light and life in His name. Now, the last time that we saw Jesus, He was visited at night by a religious leader, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was curious about how to enter the kingdom of God. And in today's text, Jesus has retreated into the Judean countryside He's moved from an urban setting to a rural setting. So, while he's there, and and while you're finding this text in your Bibles, it's John chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, and I'm going to read through verse 36, and I just want to warn you in today's text. Today's text is for, particularly for believers, today's text is very thought-provoking. It causes us to take our faith very seriously. This text challenges us to question why are we really following Jesus? And it calls us to a hardcore devotion that I think is really needed in particularly in the times in which we find ourselves living. And so let's jump in in verse 22. I'm going to read through this text. You follow along and listen as I read. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In verse 22, John begins with the words, After this, he references the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. 
And Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jerusalem. They're, they're going out to the country. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 2 of John's gospel, if we skip ahead, that John clarifies that Jesus didn't baptize anyone. It's rather his disciples who are baptizing. Can you imagine the controversy that would have arisen if Jesus would have baptized some believers? I mean, I, I can only think that someone would have said, so I was baptized by Jesus. You were baptized by who? I mean, we're always looking for some reason to, to one-up someone. And we see um, that in this text that it wasn't Jesus that was doing the baptism. It was his disciples. But there is tension that arises in verse 23. And it sets the stage for this passage. The drama ensues. The tension is between... Um, some of God's will and, and doing what is practical or what works at times. And there's always wisdom that comes in knowing the difference. Now, John is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing. And it would be easy to begin to compare the two and to ask the question, is one doing it right? Is the other doing it wrong? And we see in verse 23 that, that look, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Why? Why is John baptizing there? Is it because this water was more holy? Is it because that this water was special in some way? Did God bless it, making it pure? Does it take away sin? And the answer is no. There was just more water there. And so John decided, I'm going to baptize here because there's water that's available. And I think that's a good lesson to us in ministry. Sometimes we overthink things. And we, we look for God to write something in the sky. And there are times in which God calls for us just to use wisdom in doing what is practical and what seems to be the next right step as we follow His Spirit. And so we see this tension that's set up. Jesus is baptizing. John is baptizing. In verse 24, uh, John just is clarifying that this is before John the Baptist is put in prison. So this is some of the earliest ministry that Jesus um, has done and that's being reported. Most of the synoptic gospels actually pick up with Jesus' ministry after John is already John the Baptist is already in prison. So uh, John is clarifying that for us. Now look in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, we have no idea what this, what this conflict was about purification. Maybe they were asking a question about the jars that Jesus filled with not just water but changed it into wine back at the wedding at Cana. It seemed that neither John the Baptist nor Jesus had real big expectations or values around ceremonial purification. There was a, a set of uh, Jews who believed that it was important that, that they were baptized daily. And so they would practice the ritual of daily cleansing. And there were a lot of different beliefs about baptism at this time. And, and some of those are coming into question but we see the tension even begin to arise more in verse 26. We see that John's disciples go to him and they're worried. They're concerned that crowds are leaving Jesus. 
and or they're leaving to go and see Jesus. And it's interesting that they, they seem to be so frustrated that they refuse to even call Jesus by name. They bring this question to John. They're concerned. And instantly in this text, early on, Jesus' ministry is just beginning. And instantly we see what I want to describe as the sin of comparison. Beginning to enter into this ministry. And I call it the sin of comparison because comparison is always hurtful. It's never helpful. Ask a sprinter to try running a race while looking at the person beside him. Never goes well. A sprinter always uh, keeps in his lane. He's watching his lane. He's keeping his eyes on the goal. And he is running his race. And that's the example that John the Baptist is going to set for us today. The sin of comparison always blocks us from loving other people because it introduces competition. I want you to think about this for just a minute. Early on in Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist's disciples are already setting things up for competition. And, and I'll just say this personally. Religious leaders... Not just John the Baptist's disciples, but religious leaders in general throughout history are some of the worst at this. Comparing nickels to noses. Now, I grew up in a Southern Baptist context. And a common question that I would hear when pastors get together is they would just ask these, uh, these three simple words. What you running? What you running? And like, if you don't know the context, then you're like, I run about a two-hour half marathon. I run about a four-hour marathon. I don't know. I can still run a 5K under 25 minutes. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? What are you running? Pastors are constantly wanting to know how many people are in your congregation, how many noses, and how many nickels. Like, what's your budget? Because they're always constantly seeking to evaluate themselves against others. Oscar Wilde gives a great illustration. He tells the story. The devil was once crossing the Libyan desert and he came upon a spot where a number of small fiends were tormenting a holy hermit. The sainted man easily shook off their evil suggestions. The devil watched their failure and then he stepped forward to give them a lesson. What you do is too crude, he said. Permit me for one moment. With that he whispered to the holy man. Your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. A scrowl of malignant jealousy at once clouded the serene face of the hermit. That, said the devil to his imps, is a sort of thing which I should recommend. You know, it's not just pastors who struggle with comparison. Unless you're intentional, it most likely happens every time you look at social media. Did you realize that? It's why studies have shown that people are happier when they aren't on social media and that they're, least, they're less happy when they are on social media. Scientific statistics have shown that to be true. Because it's impossible for us to get on social media and not to begin to compare ourselves. And by the way... Moms, no one's winning 
the mom pandemic award, okay? And so you can just chill out on trying to homeschool, you know, eight hours a day. And like, it's going to be okay. Like, make sure your kids are fed and that they get to bed at a decent time. Mac, that's always 930 for you. Just want to clarify that. Um, Make sure you're awake out there. But yeah, like we struggle with comparison so often. And I call it the sin of comparison because comparing usually leads us to to envy and jealousy. You know, if I had her looks, ladies, you often think, or if I had his build, guys, or that car, or, or, or their talents. And not only do we wish that we had them, but we also wish that they didn't. And it keeps us from appreciating and truly loving others. If you think about it, jealousy isn't just limited to external things or worldly things. Jealousy comes into the church very often. Um, All too often, it comes in through wishing that we had someone else's abilities or someone else's gifts. I mean, everyone can't run a camera and play the bass and maybe even have a tambourine on their hip like Peter Braswell. It's just everybody can't do that. And... So I make a joke, but at the same time, like how often do we say, man, if if I just had their gifts, or how often do we try to keep up with someone because we see the pace that they're running in ministry or the capacity they seem to have and that we want to be like them. I don't know of anything hardly that will render a church useless other than the sin of comparison. Maybe gossip is the only thing that, that, that wins the race quicker than the sin of comparison. But comparison runs a quick second. It leaves us miserable and inwardly focused and it steals our joy. And I just want you to think as we, as we get into this text and we see uh, John the Baptist's disciples who are struggling with comparison, I just want you to stop and think for a minute. Personally for you, what are some areas in your life, some categories where you struggle with comparison? Now, this is crazy. This is going to call for a lot of openness, but jump on that live stream comment feed and pretend that you have a friend and share where your friend may struggle with the sin of comparison. Throw some subjects and some classifications and some categories out there where we oftentimes will struggle with comparison. John is going to show us in this text the antidote to the sin of jealousy and envy. Look in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. That's beautiful. Underline that text. Man, we need to be reminded of that during this day and time. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. There's an old saying. It goes like this. If you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know he had some help getting there. And that's kind of like, that's kind of like a dad joke. I I get it, Cole. Um, It's kind of a funny picture, but that's how John sees himself. He's the turtle, and turtles can't climb up fence posts. They have to be placed there. And so he, he gives this rather broad principle, but I think it's 
very applicable in our lives. A man or woman or child, a, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. See, John understood his role. And this is a big idea I want you to take away today. John understood that God is provider and that we are receiver. God is provider and we are receiver. It's so important that we get that. That we remember that God is boss. And that He provides us with resources that we cannot gain on our own. And some of you are out there and you're worried and you're concerned. And I can kind of understand a little bit. I'll never forget sitting in a Starbucks in Green Hills in Nashville, Tennessee, probably around 2008 or 9. And I'll never forget sitting there on New Year's Day, working when I should have been at home with my family, because I was anxious and concerned that we were planting a church, and I was really concerned that we were going to run out of money. And as I sat there and prayed, an elderly man picked up a conversation with me, and by the end of the conversation, he had written the check at church for $100. And the, it wouldn't have mattered if he would have written the check for $5 or $1,000. In that moment, God reminded me, I'm boss. I'm the one who gives good gifts. I'm provider. That's not your job. Your job is to receive. And I took that check and I said, I get it, God. And I went home and hung out with my family. Listen, I understand that we are in tough times. And we're at the beginning. I believe that they economically they're going to get much worse. And it's important that we remember that He is the one who is provider. That He created air and we took it in. That He created the garden and we lived in it. That God gave us relationship and we're the ones who received intimacy. And here's the thing, guys. We are responsible for our depth with Jesus and God is responsible for the breadth of our life and of our ministry. We're responsible for our depth with Jesus. And so we are responsible to be in relationship with Him. And He is the one who is responsible to offer provision. And whatever breadth of provision He gives us, whatever influence He gives us, whatever financial provision He gives us, He will provide. Which, by the way, if you are struggling with provision, we will not know that until you tell us. And so please, email, phone call, text message, your missional community leaders, your coffee groups, our church. That's not something that you're going to be able to do alone. And we want to be here as a spiritual family to care for those who are in need. If we are wise, we'll recognize that God has called all of us to be good stewards. During not just this pandemic, but during all of our life. Because there's really nothing that we own. God is the owner, He's the boss, and He's the judge. We don't own anything. There are millions of people all across the country right now that are discovering just how fragile life is. How really dependent they are on God as they face unemployment and loss of wages and potential sickness and the avalanche of economic crisis. And all too often we look around and we assume that things are ours and they're not. We look at resources and finances and talents 
and strengths and successes and even yearly bonuses that we just assume are going to happen. And we call them mine and they're not. It's really not ours. Everything is God's. He entrusted to us for a very short amount of time. And He holds us responsible for how we utilize those resources. And He can take them away at any moment. And sometimes He does. There's amazing freedom, however, in realizing this reality. To let go and not to try to control, but to surrender. Because we didn't earn it, and so we don't have to keep it. Because God is the one who's in control. I want to remind you in your CBR journals, in the community Bible reading journals, if you don't have the app, go to your, uh, go to your app store on your mobile device and look up CBR journal, and you'll find that app that you can download. If you have a paper copy of that journal, the very first question that is asked on a daily basis that you would write, what is it? What do I need to surrender what do I need to surrender to God? It's a great question for us to begin every day with. Look at verse 28. John gives us this example. And uh, it, he, he, stood it, he understood his role really clearly. Uh, he was to point people to Jesus. He understood he was not the main attraction. I don't know if you guys remember this, but when we first uh, began to study John the Baptist, we were reminded that John the Baptist was Jesus' hype man. You know, Jesus didn't need a hype man, but God sent John the Baptist ahead of him, and and he prepared the way for Jesus, and John got that. He understood it. And John's looking at his disciples, and he's saying, Hey, guys, I don't know what the big surprise is here. In verse 28, he's saying, This is not the first time that we've been over this lesson. From day one, I've declared, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. And this is what I'd love to know, because I think this is when it gets really applicable for us. I would love to know what the follow-up conversation was from that. Because I'm guessing that John's disciples might have said, John, we get that. We understood you clearly that you aren't the Messiah. But John, we want to remind you, you're the forerunner to the Messiah. That makes you second in command, right? And it seems like there'd be some pretty big rewards, John. It seems like there'd be some pretty big influence here. I mean, John, you've sacrificed a lot. Think about it. You've been living in the desert, man. You've been eating locusts. You had not been wearing Louis Vuitton for crying out loud. You've been wearing camel's hair, John. You've given up so much. And I think this is where we can easily begin to struggle. In our relationship with God. It's so easy for us to develop an attitude of entitlement with God. Especially around the idea of sacrifice. As if he owed us something. That's the furthest thing from the gospel. Consider that. When we begin to think. When we grow angry or upset with God. Because we think that he owes us something. Think about that. Is How that's really the, just the opposite of the gospel. God owes us nothing. He's given us everything in Jesus. John had a really healthy understanding of his position and his role. He didn't make demands to be honored. He didn't cry out for certain rights. Instead, he confidently continued to fulfill his mission of pointing people to Jesus. And he offers this really unique illustration as he sees himself as the best man. Now, this is going to be a little strange to us, but it would have made complete sense to his disciples. The friend of the groom had a very unique place in a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride 
and the groom. He arranged the wedding and he presided at the wedding feast. He actually brought the bride and the groom together. And he had one special, I would even say unique, duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would open the door only when he recognized the groom's voice. The best man stood at the door, get this, while the bride and the groom consummated the marriage. And when he heard the groom come to the door, he announced that the couple was married and the seven-day reception began. And, and John understood the place of honor he had been given. He saw himself as the best man. I want to ask this question as we end today. Why is it that we seem to have such a hard time with this, with understanding our role? You know, in the beginning when we come to know God, we love God. We want to serve Him. Everything seems so pure in our lives. But over time, our expectations begin to develop. We oftentimes will start trying to cut deals with God. We'll make demands. We think of if-then scenarios. And I think the reason why we do this is that we forget the gospel. Unbelief creeps into our lives. And we begin to believe that we have better plans than what God has for us. That we have better goals for our lives than what God could consider. And John reminds us of a simple truth. A simple truth that enables us to make much of Jesus. And to find our joy in Jesus and in Jesus alone comes in verse 30. John gives these simple words, and I want to leave you with them. I hope that you'll take these words throughout your week with you. John simply says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. I don't know that there could be wiser words during the time in which we live in order that the church could could give a meaningful witness of the gospel of Jesus. Are we truly willing to decrease in our lives? Are you willing to take your expectations of what you believe God owes you and lay them at the foot of the cross? Your expectations around your career, your love life, all your finances, your 401k, your family, even your kids... And to lay all those expectations at the foot of the cross. That you might decrease in order that he might increase. Have you ever heard someone say. I just don't know what I would do if. Whatever you fill that blank in with. I just don't know what I would do if. Whatever you fill that blank in with. There's a high probability that it has become your God. How was it possible for John the Baptist to remain so content in what seemed like earthly failure? What gave him perspective to see the bigger picture? And how could we have that kind of perspective that we might be willing to decrease in order that Jesus could increase? He found his great success in life. In making much of Jesus. Not of much of his career. 
or much of his family or much of what he wanted in life in terms of his dreams and expectations? No. In making much of Jesus. How does the glory of God need to become greater in your life today? How does the glory of God need to become greater in your family today? How does the glory of God need to become greater on your street today? It will never happen until you become thoroughly convinced that His eternal glory being revealed is greater than any reward you can experience from earthly gain. Let me say that again. It will never happen until you become thoroughly convinced that His eternal glory being revealed is greater than any reward you can experience from earthly gain. I want to end today just by asking us to move into a time of uh, confession and repentance. And I've got a couple of questions that I want to throw up on the screen for you. And you can take a screenshot of these or, or pull out your phone and take a picture. I want you to consider them. How do you need to repent of an entitlement mentality with God? How do you need to repent of an entitlement mentality with God? What expectations have you put on Jesus? I don't think we want to go down that road of entitlement in which we say, God, you owe us. Because the truth is, we owe Jesus everything. And God has given us everything in return in Jesus. How do you need to repent of an entitlement mentality with God? And second, where do you need to become less? By giving of your time, maybe even your pride and yourself away in order that others can experience more of Jesus. Listen, folks, we're moving into a very unique time in our lives in which uh, giving of our lives away might mean for uh, some of us maybe even making some sacrifices. You know, maybe for some of us who are younger and we're not as worried or concerned and we're in good health, maybe it would mean saying that we're willing to become less and that we're willing to go and, and do some shopping for those who um, have immune systems that, that aren't as healthy as ours um, or who are concerned about going to the store. I mean, there are real physical ways that we have the opportunity of being willing to say, I'm willing to decrease. Like, I, it doesn't mean that I have permission just to shut myself in my home over these next few weeks and months that are ahead. It doesn't mean that I just have the opportunity to shut down hospitality. It might look a lot different than what we've experienced in the past, but what would it mean for me to decrease in order that the glory of God could increase? It might be as simple as going out of your way to make a lot of extra text messages and phone calls. Keep in mind those who are single adults. Keep in mind those who are elderly. Keep in mind those are, who are health care workers, even environmental services workers who are continuing to clean buildings, um, healthcare workers who are putting themselves at risk. Keep in mind those who are struggling in an economic downturn, who are experiencing job loss and might not be willing to reach out and to ask for help until someone reaches out to them and says, when's the last time that you received a paycheck? What are ways that we could decrease and that the glory of God could increase? What are ways in this time in which we live, in which we might be willing to even give a bold witness to say, hey, every morning when I wake up, the only peace that I'm really finding is realizing that I need to surrender everything that I have to Jesus 
and putting my hope in something, something that will not disappoint, something that is not temporary, putting my hope in the one who is the great healer, who has promised that he will restore all things. What would it look like if we decreased in order that the glory of Jesus could increase in our lives and in our homes and on our streets and in our community? Let me pray for us.